You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. This is the Spectral Skull Session, and I am your host, Dane. A broad-based conspiracism becoming central to the way the world operates from international news, mainstream American politics, and the ongoing war among the oligarchs who rule the West. Our lead story today, the infamous Bilderberg Group, subject of so many conspiracy theories. They are holding their 69th annual meeting from May 16th to 23rd in Lisbon, Portugal. The Bilderberg Group bills themselves as a meeting of select political leaders and experts from industry, finance, labor, academia, and the media. Most attendees come from Europe, and a third are drawn from North America. Bilderbergers, as I like to call them, say they operate under Chatham House rules, meaning that participants are free to use whatever information they receive, but neither the identity nor the affiliation of the speakers nor of any other participant may be revealed. However, the Bilderberger website does list their planned agenda for this year. Topics, AI, banking systems, China, energy transition, Europe, India, Russia, and you guessed it, Ukraine. Now, we don't know everyone invited to Bilderberger meetings, but the media has gotten their hands on a couple interesting names. Sam Altman, head of ChatGPT, who has recently been warning that AI will destroy the world unless regulated. He will be there alongside representatives from Google and Microsoft, two companies that are also working on artificial intelligence. They will be accompanied by political heavyweights, such as former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg, and Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba. And the leaked presence of multiple companies involved in AI has the media speculating that the threat posed by AI will be the focus of this year's Build a Burger event. CNBC reporting that AI is, quote, topping the agenda, end quote, because CNBC failed to notice that the Build a Burger agenda items are listed in alphabetical order. AI starts with A. Now, the Bilderberger Group is probably held in suspicion by the masses because of the combination of elite membership, press secrecy, and their closed-door policy. Investigative journalist Dan Estelin wrote a book about the Bilderberger Group titled The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Estelin presents a comprehensive exploration of this secretive organization, claiming that it operates as a shadowy global government 
with an agenda for world domination. He delves into alleged connections between the group, international events, highlighting their alleged manipulation of world affairs and control over resources. The independent journalist Jim Tucker and the talk show host Alex Jones have also advanced conspiratorial views of the Bilderbergers. Non-conspiracy theorists say the Bilderberg Group was created in part by Polish politician Joseph Redinger, who aimed to foster dialogue and understanding between Europe and America in the aftermath of World War II. But in all fairness to the conspiracists, while I don't know if there's anything intrinsically shady about transatlantic elites meeting for a kind of do-it-yourself barbecue, this Build-A-Burger event, uh, although it'd be nice if they saved money and just went to Fuddruckers, nevertheless, what I do find to be sort of troubling is that I don't see America's elites hobnobbing as much with the elites of the larger world. They always seem to be hanging out with the Europeans. But how about Turkey, Malaysia, Brazil, to name a few? And how about also India, now set to have the world's largest population by mid-century, currently growing their economy at over 7% per year? Compare that to Western Europe, which only grows at 2%. I'd like to see American elites doing a version of Build-A-Burger with the Indians. Let's call it Build-A-Samosa. Now let's look at the latest conspiracy theories coming out of that Slavic land of mystery, Russia. On the last episode of this show, I warned that if Ukraine breaks through Russian front lines during their planned spring, now it looks like it's going to be a summer offensive, we could see the Russians respond in an unconventional way, possibly by using their panoply of anti-satellite weapons to destroy the American satellite network. And Russian officials have responded to my concerns in a recent interview with, the Mo- with a Moscow-based radio station, the ex-space chief, Dmitry Rogozin, was asked to comment on Russia's capability to destroy Western satellites, including the Starlink system operated by Elon Musk's SpaceX company. And he said, quote, if we need to whack down, physically destroy, or simply neutralize the enemy orbital constellations, we will do that very quickly. We have all the necessary means for this. But he added Russia would face immediate retaliation, lose all of its own satellites, and it would lead to escalation and war. Rogozin, the ex-chief of Roscosmos, is currently said to be involved in a volunteer fighting force operating inside Ukraine called Tsar's Wolves. In Russian, that's Tsarsky Volki. He's also a high-profile proponent of the view that the American moon landing never happened claimed that before he worked at Roscosmos, he was skeptical because he noticed that when Soviet and then Russian cosmonauts would return from outer space, they would look exhausted, whereas NASA astronauts were always hale and hearty. So this made him skeptical that they were even going into outer space. He asked Roscosmos to look into it, and he says they produced an entire book for him titled Conquest of the Moon by Astronauts. Contrary to the claims of Roscosmos, the United States government does not claim to have conquered the moon in virtue of having landed astronauts on it. Now, this book was supposed to reassure him that, yes, astronauts really had landed on the moon, but he believed they had written it only for political reasons to avoid trouble with Washington. 
he remained unconvinced and said during his tenure at Roscosmos, he repeatedly looked into the question, trying to find some kind of evidence that NASA had in fact landed on the moon, but he could not. So he still believes it is a fake. As for Dimitri's concern that Russian astronauts look sicker than American astronauts when they come back from space, I think that probably has to do with NASA taking better care of their astronauts. I know they put a lot of effort into making sure their nutrition is right, their physical fitness is at its peak. They really monitor those guys, whereas the Soviet system treated people more in a dispensable way. So I suspect that they just didn't put as much care into individual people. On a personal note, when I was in the independent nation of Georgia, we had access to the whole panoply of Russian pharmaceuticals. And people told me, if you ever feel tired, there's this drug you should take. It was taken by the Russian cosmonauts, the people who went into outer space, and it kept them perky and awake and alert and healthy. So many people, Russian and American, spoke really well of this. It's called phenylparacetam. And so I went to the pharmacy and I just asked for some phenylparacetam and I tried some phenylparacetam and uh, it didn't absolutely nothing. And so uh, I am very skeptical. I think that's another thing that they maybe they they were given a placebo to make them feel better, but it didn't work. And so they came back looking awful. In Soviet Russia, the space program drugs you. So there you have a classic Moon landing conspiracy theory. Now, I did not know the moon landing conspiracy theory, the theory that the moon landing never happened, was actually Russian disinformation. Did you know that? Because I've been hearing it my whole life, and only recently did I realize that it was a popular view among at least some Russian elites. Now let's go to the United States, where a conspiracy theorist is running for president, RFK Jr., He is the nephew of John F. Kennedy. He says JFK was assassinated by the CIA, proclaiming it, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt. He said there's overwhelming evidence the CIA was involved in his murder. I think it's beyond a reasonable doubt at this point. These remarks were made in an interview on WABC 770 AM on May 7th. RFK Jr. was seven years old when his uncle, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And now he's running for president on the Democratic Party ticket. A recent poll found that 20 percent of Democratic voters said they would vote for him. In an interview with the, inter- with the independent media outlet Unheard, look them up on YouTube because they're very good, Unheard, with an H-E-R-D, like an animal herd, RFK Jr. described... Uh, His role as a litigator, that he's worked uh, in environmental law for much of his life, he's found evidence the head of the EPA was working with Monsanto. He subsequently became convinced that all of America's regulatory agencies have been co-opted and corrupted by big business. The FDA, CDC, NIH, SEC, FEC, but also even the intelligence community, including the CIA and the Pentagon, all corrupted by their involvement with corporate interests. Unheard did a great job asking RFK directly, are you really talking about corruption in the sense of people taking bribes? Or is it just that there's sort of a revolving door where people will go from these regulatory organizations to industry and back again? He said explicitly, it's both. 
RFK Jr. also said he sees himself as a liberal in the tradition of the Kennedys, and he described that tradition as opposed to war, corporate power, and censorship. And he described his confidence in a growing coalition of left and right-leaning figures uniting around populist themes, and his belief that only this, the rise of American populism, can rescue democracy. RFK Jr. said he will go on any platform that his wife can tolerate, so he will speak to anybody, but she draws the line at Steve Bannon's War Room podcast and Alec Jones's Infowars. So that's RFK Jr. He says he's running for the Democratic nomination because America has been captured by corporate interests. Now, he also has a history of being against, not necessarily against, but being very critical of vaccines. So prior to the COVID-19 situation, he was involved in that. uh, There were people in the early 21st century who were very concerned that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was causing autism. And so he was part of that. And so he still, based on, I looked at a book he wrote, seems to believe that, yes, measles, mumps, rubella makes people more likely to have autism. And my understanding is that's been totally debunked. It goes back to Andrew Wakefield, who was a British doctor, who he did research while he was basically working with people who were suing pharmaceutical companies. Uh, His research found what he was looking for. He didn't do his research properly. He didn't report his conflicts of interest. Subsequently, to his research coming out, you know, California at one point changed the way vaccines were manufactured. Canada and Japan also changed the way vaccines were manufactured, and it didn't have any effect on the autism rates. And so, um, you know, generally thought that that has been discredited. And so, no, the thing that he said in the interview when they talked, we talked to Unheard, is he said... He's not going to dwell on the vaccine stuff. So he's running for president to bring people together. We need to restore faith in America's institutions. He doesn't want to talk about these specific um, concerns that he's had in the past about the safety of our vaccines. So it's going to be a really interesting question. Um, Will the people and will the corporate interests let him off the hook for these things? Will they allow him to move on and talk about his positive message of uniting Americans? Can he win the Democratic nomination against President Biden? I think it's unlikely. But um, now America has a long history of conspiracy theorists running for president. In recent decades, we had a recurring conspiracy theorist. Um, His name was Lyndon LaRouche, born in 1922, died in 2019. He ran for president eight times. That great scholar of American conspiracism, Robert Anton Wilson, described LaRouche as, quote, having made a long and kinky journey from the far left to the far right with a stop-off in federal prison for fraud and tax evasion. All his disciples insist he was framed, of course. While his distinctive conspiracy theory has evolved somewhat over the years, it remains constant in finding the British royal family the most, or one of the most, sinister forces in the galaxy. However, the Wikipedia article for LaRouche speaks not to his conspiracism, but to his comprehensive view of human history as being driven by a war of ideas. Apparently, he thinks that most of human history is basically determined by a clash between Platonists and Aristotelians, LaRouche and the forces of good being on the Platonic side, who believe in the power of science 
technology, and business to assist human progress and enable the development of Earth. Whereas Aristotelians tend to have a negative view of science, technology, and progress, and he considers people like environmentalists and those who advocate for population control to be in the Aristotelian camp. He thought that environmentalism was a kind of neo-medievalism, so a, a callback to the medieval world, uh, and that if we pursued environmentalism, we would in fact destroy human civilization. He advocated for the development of nuclear power. And so LaRouche did feel that there was this sort of Aristotelian opposition to progress. Now, I don't really understand what it was about Aristotle that would cause people to be opposed to progress. So it sounds to me more like LaRouche kind of divided the world up into people who are optimists about progress and pessimists about progress. And then he labeled the optimists Platonists and the pessimists Aristotelians. And my suspicion, I'm kind of spitballing here based on my own background in history of philosophy, um, is that he drew this connection between Aristotelians and pessimism based on the fact that the works of Aristotle were extremely popular with the medieval Catholic Church and uh, people like, like Galileo and Copernicus who pushing for different ways of looking at science and developing the new science. They were adamantly opposed by the Catholic Inquisition on the grounds that their theories were incompatible with the teachings of Aristotle. So LaRouche sounds like he was actually a really interesting person. And you wonder, well, why was he so hated? Because for years he was considered the ridiculous kooky fringe of the Democratic Party. Well, in 1986, with the AIDS virus terrifying America, LaRouche managed to get California to put on the ballot a plan to forcibly quarantine anyone infected with the AIDS virus and to forcibly test all Californians for HIV. The New York Times of 1986 warned that if his plan was put into effect, it would result in the mass detention of hundreds of thousands of people due to false positives. In subsequent interviews, LaRouche would say, that his involvement in this issue led to the galvanization of public opinion through the mobilization of gay activists. He would say, the gay activists basically came after me because of my desire to quarantine them. And they've been using the media, Saturday Night Live, to lampoon me, make me out to be this ridiculous conspiracy theorist, which I am not. But I think LaRouche sometimes dug his own grave I want to play for you a, a little spot. This was a, an advertisement he did as part of his presidential campaign, campaign for the Democratic nomination in 1986 against Walter Mondale. Listen to this. Mondale is not simply a KGB agent of the ordinary sense, of course. Mondale is jointly owned by the left wing of the Socialist International and the grain cartel interests. If both these owners tell Mondale to lick the floor before a nationwide TV audience, I sincerely believe he would do just that. Watch Lyndon LaRouche, Independent Democrat for President, Tuesday, October 23rd. I think that leading with the accusation that your opponent is a KGB agent is the kind of thing that will cause your ad to come across as conspiratorial. So Lyndon LaRouche seems to have dug his own grave and at least 
one well-documented instance. Now, Lyndon LaRouche never came close to being president, never even won the Democratic nomination. But the Wikipedia article on him says he had tremendous influence. He apparently raised hundreds of millions of dollars for his foundations, some of which still exist today. Uh, At one point, U.S. sources told the Washington Post in 1985 that the LaRouche organization had assembled a worldwide network of government and military contacts and that his researchers sometimes supplied information to U.S. government officials. An aide to Deputy Secretary of State William Clark once said that LaRouche associates discussed technology or economics, and they would often make very good sense. They seemed very qualified. Norman Bailey, formerly with the U.S. National Security Council, said in 1984 that LaRouche's staff comprised, quote, one of the best private intelligence services in the world. They do know a lot of people around the world. They get to talk to prime ministers and presidents, end quote. Part of LaRouche's appeal, or really probably all of LaRouche's appeal, he seems to have been the smartest man in every room. And he had a comprehensive way of looking at history. And if you listen, to it, he wrote several books about economics. He talks like he knows what he's talking about. And so you really wonder, could the American people have maybe pressured LaRouche a little bit and said, you know, LaRouche, we really like what you have to say about monetary policy and, you know, the teachings of Plato and maybe people need to read more philosophy, but could you lay off some of the weird conspiracy stuff a little bit? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's what they were trying to do when they made fun of him. And so I like that, you know, when you look at RFK Jr., He's really asking people to do that. He's saying, I want to leave some of this vaccine stuff in the past. I think that when people want to move on, it would be nice if we let them do that, wouldn't it? Now, this brings me to our last story. The war between the oligarchs, Elon Musk and George Soros having it out. George Soros recently spontaneously sold $3 billion in Tesla stock. Edit. It was not $3 billion. It was $16 million, which difficult moment for Elon Musk because obviously he's the CEO of Tesla and it's been struggling. And then Musk took to Twitter, which he is the owner of, and said, Soros reminds me of Magneto. Magneto is a comic book villain from the Marvel Universe. He appears in the X-Men comic book series created by Stan Lee. He's described as a powerful mutant who uh, regards mutants as evolutionarily superior to humans and rejects the possibility of peaceful human-mutant coexistence. Instead, he aims to conquer the world to enable mutants to replace humans as the dominant species. Later in the comic book series, writers fleshed out his origins and motivations, revealing revealing him to be a Holocaust survivor whose extreme methods and cynical philosophy derived from his determination to protect mutants from suffering a similar fate at the hands of a world that fears and persecutes mutants. And so uh, people responded to Musk by saying that, uh, well, what are you comparing George Soros, who is Jewish, to Magneto, who is Jewish, and is this some sort of anti-Semitic thing? The Washington Post literally ran a headline, quote, Elon Musk compares George Soros to Jewish supervillain Magneto, So did the New Republic and numerous other online publications. Now, I've noticed that no one can criticize George Soros without being accused of anti-Semitism, which I find to be absolutely ridiculous. He is an extremely wealthy person, 
Hungarian-American, uh, great resources, made a lot of money as a hedge fund manager and currency speculator. He spends his money on political causes. And we live in an era when wealthy people have disproportionate political power. The only criticism I would make of Elon Musk comparing Soros to a supervillain would be it's a case of the pot calling the kettle black. It's oligarch on oligarch fighting. And the very fact that this sucked up any energy at all in the news cycle, a tweet from Elon Musk is indicative of what RFK Jr. is saying about American politics, right? We've been captured by money. George Soros is not a corporation. He's a person, but, you know, he gives a lot of money to media outlets. And then you see the result. Those media outlets run ridiculous headlines in support of him. You can see the corrupting influence of money, even in the story about this clash between Musk and Soros. We all need to try to transcend some of these petty interpersonal conflicts, especially the conspiracy theorists seem to be the people who are most caught up with this idea of particular people out to get them, etc. You know, see the big picture. Where do we want to go? Where do we want our country to be in four years? Maybe check out RFK Jr. and hear what he has to say on Unheard. Until next time, everybody get out there and build a samosa. Thank you for listening. I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.